sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in, have a seat. All the books around you here are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So, uh, those who've been uh, listening lately know about the bee circus Mrs. Carswell and I have been planning. It's like a flea circus, but with bees. Yes, it uh, turns out uh, we've been using all these uh, intro segments lately to keep you updated on it. Uh, it's been moving at a pretty brisk clip recently since uh, Mrs. Carswell got her uncle's packages. My uncle created the bee circus back in the 60s. We were using some of his props and ideas to kind of recreate it. With some new additions, of course. And uh, something we opened after our last show was a tube with posters, including one advertising a uh, particular show that caught my interest. The Mystic Bees Show. It's uh, all sort of Egyptian-themed. Yes. Uh, There was a backstory with the bees being discovered in an ancient tomb, sealed in an urn, but still living. And being psychic, psychic bees. Yes. It was a sort of expanded version of Aunt Althea's psychic bee shows. It was very dramatic. It started with all the lights out, and she came out in a toga carrying a lantern. Uncle Ebert would come out in one of those fake Egyptian beards and a tall pharaoh hat. They spent a lot of money on props and costumes for the show. And none of them were in the boxes? I'm afraid not. It was mainly a mind-reading show, but there were some bee props. There was a bit where worker bees built a pyramid pulling a little block of stone up ramps. Uncle Ebert would sit in his throne as a pharaoh and just nod and say little lines. I think he was drinking a lot by then, so Althea didn't give him a complicated role. Oh, that would be my role if we did the show. Not wearing one of those old kingdom crowns. It has to be one of the short ones. Uh, it might not match the time period of the pyramid building, but a short one is more workable. Well, that would be your choice. Those are the shorter ones where the crowns they wore to war. It's just that pulling something like this together, well, it was just so elaborate. There was a big finale where the spirit of the ancient magician who granted them eternal life is materialized. Oh, it's sounding like a spook show. Yes, yes, it was. With black light, Ebert had the bees dusted with some kind of glow pigment. They flow out and landed on this black board to form an image of the magician. The trick was... The board was painted with pheromone before the show, so they land just right to form the image. Oh, that's great. I'd love to see that, or do that. But it didn't go well. I guess they made some money selling what they were calling 4,000-year-old honey and other merchandise, but they spent so much on the big hall and props and costumes. That was one of the things Mother was so angry about. Ebert wasting all that money and, and, of course... The drinking. 
but what a great show. If only we had the props. I'm afraid Uncle Ebert destroyed them. He made a big bonfire one night when he was drunk. He said the show was cursed from the beginning. What a great hook. Mystic bees defying an ancient curse to come to your town. So on. I'm not sure people want cursed things coming to their towns. Well, maybe not. But I'm going to look up those Egyptian crowns after we record. I think it's called a capris or something like that. I'm picturing a blue one. I think they're usually blue. Anyway, we should get on with things with the show itself. Yes. Episode 74, Bird Women of Greece and Russia. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have uh, more on Patreon at the end of our show. And the Argonauts, the classic story of an epic voyage that has been told and retold since the birth of Western civilization, now presented on the screen for the first time. The Argonauts, battling vulturous harpies. In 1963, film goers retreated to this Anglo-American production, featuring what stop-motion wizard Ray Harryhausen regarded as his best work. It's particularly remembered for its battle between the Argonauts and an army of skeletons, but Harryhausen also created a pair of harpies for the film, rather loosely interpreting the figures as purplish, bat-winged demons. Inasmuch as they flew and were female, his animated harpies conformed to the tradition, but wings alone do not define the harpy. There are more than a few winged females in Greek mythology, such as the winged victory or Nike, or the gorgons, as you may have learned in our Medusa episode recently. In fact, Aeschylus, in his play Eumenides, written about 450 BC, has a priestess of Apollo actually confusing gorgons and harpies. She attempts to describe the latter, saying... An extraordinary band of women slept, seated on thrones. No, not women, but rather gorgons, I call them. And yet, I cannot compare them to forms of gorgons either. As you can see, earlier Greeks and Romans were somewhat confused as to what form exactly harpies should take. The priestess in Eumenides even contradicts what came to be regarded as the harpy's most recognized feature saying they were wingless in appearance. This may be something of an outlier, but the image of a harpy as a creature with the body of a bird and head, and possibly upper body, of a human female was only really standardized in late antiquity or the early medieval period. Sometimes harpies have legs, perhaps with winged sandals on their feet in addition to the wings on their backs. In the second century, 
The Roman mythographer, Pseudo-Hyginus, doesn't even provide them with human faces. They are said to have been feathered with cock's heads, wings, and human arms, with great claws, bellies, breasts, and female parts human. One trait that had become common during the classical period is their ugliness and loathsomeness, which we find again in Aeschylus, his uh, priestess character describes them as... Black, altogether disgusting. They snore with repulsive breaths. They drip from their eyes, hateful drops. Their attire is not fit to bring either before the statues of gods or into the homes of men. The other Greek bird woman we'll be discussing is the siren. Today, of course, we think of sirens as equivalent to mermaids, but originally they would have matched our bird-like image of harpies. This evolution from bird to fish is something that took place beginning around the 7th century and was still going on in the 13th century when various bestiaries would present differing species of sirens, both fishy and avian. Or, like the Northumberland bestiary, scaly sirens with a little girdle of feathers around the waist. As sirens shed their bird-like image, the avian form seems to have been inherited by harpies, which, as we've seen, had not quite standardized their appearance before the siren had its transition, so one leading to the other. In Greek and Roman art, there was already an evolution from sirens being more bird-like to less bird-like, from birds with human heads only to birds with human torsos, and of course that uh, exposed female torso was a uh, prerequisite to the mermaid siren we know today. Postures also changed with the earlier bodies low with the horizontal chests uh, counterbalanced by large extending tail feathers, and then later representations doing away with the tail altogether and showing winged figures standing quite erect on bird legs. The seductive song of the siren has always been an element of the character, but in classical representation, the siren could be a musician as well as a singer. While in uh, earlier medieval representations, you do see a few uh, mermaid sirens holding instruments, Greek and Roman sirens commonly played uh, harps and lyres and flutes. And while they're not ugly like harpies, there's no particular emphasis on beauty in uh, early literary descriptions, as there was with later mermaids. It's the magic of their song, not their beauty, that serves to attract sailors. The very first written references to both harpies and sirens comes from the Odyssey, written in the 8th century BC. And as Homer offers no real hints as to the outward appearance of these creatures, it fell to visual artists to define them several centuries later when scenes from the Odyssey began appearing as uh, decorations on pottery. Rather than any written text, the form of the siren is uh, first represented visually as an ornamental element appearing on housewares, in particular, in the case of these bird women, as uh, figurative bronze handles affixed to cauldrons. This is in the 7th to the 8th century BC in what's called the Orientalizing period of Greek art, during which a number of hybrid monsters, griffins, sphinxes, and of course sirens, began appearing on textiles and relief sculptures and other artifacts. These images seem to have been imported by Greek and Phoenician traders from the Near East, 
from uh, modern Syria and Turkey, and to have their ultimate source in Assyrian or Egyptian culture. The origin of the siren in particular appears to be the Egyptian Ba bird, winged, uh, human-headed avian figures that decorated funerary wares as representatives of the Ba, one of the five parts of the soul in Egyptian religion. So that's a bit about the outward forms of the sirens and harpies, which tend to blur together, but their function in stories is quite different. Harpies are very much defined by their name, which means something like snatcher or swift robber. And they're often likened to gusts of winds or whirlwinds sent by Zeus to snatch something from the earth. Their bird-like image then would be organically related to their function, to something appearing from the sky suddenly, something with the snatching claws or talons, which were often emphasized. But as snatchers sent by the gods, they're also sometimes referred to as the Hounds of Zeus. Though I don't believe they were ever actually pictured as canines on anything. Different narratives disagree as to their uh, native habitat and their number, which is most commonly given as two or three. And writers seem to have different ideas about what the individual harpies might be named, their personal names, but the translations of these are all usually similar in that they're suggestive of their ferocious speed, for instance. Storm wind, storm footed, racing victor, fleet footed, flashing footed. The 1953 Harryhausen film, Jason and the Argonauts, is uh, loosely based on the Argonautica, the Greek epic by Apollonius Rhodius from the third century BC. Uh, Homer's reference to harpies was only a passing one, but this text, more than any other, defines the creatures. The uh, episode in Book 2 involves uh, Phineas of Thrace, a prophet of Zeus, a prophet whom Zeus has blinded for revealing to man things he should not know, and then beyond that, there's the matter of uh, Phineas not being able to feed himself. Here's the passage detailing that, in which we encounter harpies, which seem to have heads that are more bird-like than human in this case. Repeatedly, as Phineas complains to Jason, a sumptuous banquet is set before him. But all of a sudden, swooping through the clouds, the harpies, with their crooked beaks, incessantly snatched the food away from his mouth and hands. And at times, not a morsel of food was left, at others but a little in order that he might live and be tormented. And they poured forth over all a loathsome stench, and no one dared not merely to carry food to his mouth, but even to stand at a distance, so foully reeked the remnants of the meal. Jason agrees to drive off the harpies in exchange for the secret means by which his ship may pass through the Cyanian rocks, a pair of rocks that close upon each other and crush any vessel attempting to sail through. Uh, Jason actually subcontracts the harpy problem out to the Boreads, the sons of Boreas, the north wind, who, like the harpies, can fly, which is useful. Though the harpies are chased off, the goddess Iris restrains the Boreads, forbidding them to kill the harpies as they are, after all, servants of Zeus. 
A couple centuries later, around 20 BC, Virgil describes a similar scene with his uh, Trojan adventurers in Book 3 of the Aeneid. Aeneas and his men were attempting to enjoy a feast, and they're beset by these creatures whose uh, loathsome uh, nature Virgil seems to characterize with particular relish. No viler monstrosity than they, no pest more atrocious, did ever the wrath of God conjure up out of hell's swamp. Bird-bodied, girl-faced things, they are abominable with their droppings, their hands are talons, their faces haggard with hunger insatiable. The Thousand and One Thrills of Ulysses, the greatest of all adventurers, mightiest of all warriors, biggest of all motion pictures, Ulysses! In 1954, a year after Jason and the Argonauts hit the theaters, the Italian film Ulysses appeared with Kirk Douglas as Odysseus and cinematography by the horror director Mario Bava, who also directed the Cyclops scene in the film, but uh, sadly no stop motion. Of course, it's not just the Odyssey that has sirens making their home on or next to a shipwreck causing rocks. They're always near rocks, but there's no real agreement as to the location of their island. And likewise, their parentage, uh, like that of the Harpies, also differs depending on the narrative, as does their number, though it tends to range from between two and eight. Homer doesn't note how many there are or give them individual names, but he paints a vivid picture of their habitat as he has the enchantress Circe describe to Odysseus what he will encounter. First, you will reach the island of the Sirens, those creatures whose spell bind any man alive, whoever comes their way. Whoever draws too close off guard and catches the Sirens' voices in the air, no sailing home for him, no wife rushing up to meet him, no happy children beaming up at their father's face. The high, thrilling song of the Sirens will transfix him, lolling there in their meadow, round them heaps of corpses, rotting away rags of skin, shriveling on their bones. As listeners may remember from school, Odysseus wants to get an earful of the siren song without succumbing, of course, so before sailing past, he orders his crew to plug their ears with wax, but his ears remain unplugged and he's tied to the mast so he can't be seduced into um, steering the ship towards those rocks. Uh, there's an element you might not remember, as it doesn't quite fit the model of uh, sexual seduction we associate with sirens now. It's an offer of omniscience, with the sirens promising Odysseus they'll tell you everything that is going to happen over the whole world. And this is a theme we'll pick up later with other bird women myths. Sirens also appear in the Argonautica, in which they uh, manage to seduce at least one sailor to jump overboard, but he's rescued by Aphrodite, and the rest of the crew is preserved as the siren's song is overpowered by the music of Orpheus, who just happens to be aboard. 
Also in the Argonautica, we have a myth explaining how the sirens got their wings. We learned that they were originally handmaidens of Persephone, and upon her abduction by Hades, the servants were sent by Demeter to find her and given their wings to aid them in their search. This connection with Persephone hits at the Sirens Association with the underworld and the afterlife generally. And like the Egyptian bob bird from which the figures derive, the siren seems, among other things, to have served a role as a psychopomp or soul guide to the other side. Like bob birds, sirens are often found on Greek funerary wares, and their connection with mourning is made explicit in the play Helen, written by Euripides in the 5th century BC, in which a grieving Helen of Troy declares, Sirens, may you come to my mourning with Libyan flute or pipe or lyre, tears to match my plaintive woes, grief for grief and mournful chant for chant. May Persephone send choirs of death in harmony with my lamentation, so that she may receive as thanks from me, in addition to my tears, a paean for the departed dead beneath her gloomy roof. And now to Russia, where we see a similar and actually more pronounced connection between bird women and the afterlife. Actually, the figures I'll discuss are found not only in Russia, but also in modern Ukraine and Belarus, wherever the culture of the East Slavs was predominant. The Siren and Alkonost are two mythical sisters, winged and covered with colorful, sometimes peacock-like feathers from the neck down, or sometimes uh, from the waist downward halos usually encircle their heads, and the Alquinost, at least, also wears a crown. They're also known for their singing, which was so beautiful as to bewitch the listener, driving all thoughts from the mind and creating a state of lethargy or ecstatic trance or madness. Only saints were said to be able to withstand or understand the divine essence of their song. The creatures are usually said to live together in paradise or the underworld. For the pagan Slavs, this would mean Iri, a sort of a cosmic garden of paradise, which in early Christian times was understood as an earthly Eden found along the Euphrates or in India. In keeping with this, the Sirin and Alkonost were often represented perched on an apple tree or a fruited bush. Images of these creatures were often used to decorate doorways and other artifacts to simply ensure good luck, but over time the two sisters were assigned complementary functions with the Alkanost uh, providing protection through the daytime hours and the Siren the night. The Alkanost came to represent life's joyous side and the Siren its sorrowful side. In some contexts, the Siren was represented as malevolent or a bringer of death. And old Lupki, Russian broadsheets or popular prints, show uh, villagers firing off cannons to scare away the Siren. But the Alkonost, as I noted, could also drive men mad. 
I'm also seeing it suggested that both birds since the 17th century were increasingly associated with paradise and therefore ideas of goodwill and harmony. To be honest, some of this may be due to some muddled translations I'm using. There's not very much content on these creatures in English. But it also seems possible that either there was originally one bird divided into two at some point in history to represent different aspects, or that different figures merged or swapped traits, depending on who's telling the story. Or it might just be a matter of perspective, as with the saint who revels in their song and the sinner who is destroyed by it. One traditional story in which the Sirin and Alkanost feature is the myth of Kostroma and Kupiela associated with the summer solstice. Uh, if the name Kupiela rings a bell, you probably know it from midsummer bonfire rites known as Kupala night or Ivan Kupala, which is uh, St. John's Eve. Uh, Kupiela's name is related to the word for bonfire and the figure is an embodiment of the holiday. Uh, we've touched on these midsummer festivities in our Rusalka episodes, discussion of the uh, Simic, the seven days leading up to the solstice. And the song you're hearing is the traditional one recounting the story I'm about to relate. Kostroma and Kupiela were female and male twins, respectively, who encountered the bird women. Kostroma becomes enraptured by the heavenly song of the Alkonost, but Kupiela listens to the Syrian, who abducts him to the land of the dead. In the process, both are bewitched, so they no longer remember they are brother and sister. Kupiela is eventually released amid the living, and while sailing down a river one day, spies a wreath of flowers that he plucks from the water, one which Kostroma had been wearing before it was swept into the water by a gust of wind. All this is significant in light of a sort of fortune-telling tradition of Kupala night by which unmarried women weave floral crowns and cast them on the water in hopes they'll be picked up by their future husbands. And so, regardless of any technicalities involving intention or wind, after this floral wreath is picked up, Kupiela and Kostroma must marry. And after this, the Sirin removes his spell and the two realize they are siblings. In horror, Kupiela casts himself into a bonfire to die, and Kostroma drowns herself in the river to become the first Rusalka, or water ghost. So, all very tragic, and this would be one of the more unflattering portrayals of the Syrian in Slavic mythology. The conversion of pagan Russia theoretically took place in 988, but just as we see the old celebration of Kupala night overlaid with the feast of St. John the Baptist, old customs, myths, and figures, including the Alkonost and Syrian, were often assimilated into Christian culture. In New Testaments of the 10th to 13th century, for instance, an image of the Alkonost was used to represent the Holy Spirit. In the book of Genesis, the bird hybrids were shown poised on apple trees in the Garden of Eden. And in the 16th and 17th century, the creatures were regularly featured in 
what were called the ABC books uh, used by missionaries to teach the illiterate populations to read. Another pagan celebration overlaid with Christian meaning takes place on August 19th. In church tradition, it's the Feast of the Transfiguration, a commemoration of a biblical episode which Christ reveals himself to his apostles, transfigured in glory. But the East Slavs have another name for it, Apple Savior. It's the day in which the apple harvest is blessed and the most popular of three Savior holidays, which also include Honey Savior on August 14th and Nut Savior on August 29th. While it's considered unlucky to eat an apple before August 19th, once blessed, apples are enjoyed in outdoor tea parties featuring apple cake alongside raw apples, of course, and other treats. Apples are also left on the graves of dead children on this day. On the morning of the day, the siren is said to fly into the orchards to sing sad songs and weep. But in the afternoon, the alquenost arrives with joyful songs. Their appearance in the orchards is said to ensure a healthy yield in coming years, blessing all who consume the fruit with health and vitality. Though these bird hybrids were integrated into the folk culture of the East Slavs, they have roots elsewhere, in Greece, unsurprisingly. Like the Russian Orthodox Church and Cyrillic alphabet, they are a cultural transmission from the Byzantine era, probably arriving in the 8th century with Greek or Persian merchants crossing the Black Sea to Crimea and moving north along the Dnieper River. The siren obviously comes from the Greek siren, but the alkonost also comes from a Greek myth deriving its name from Alcyone, a uh, Thessalonian princess and daughter of King Aeolus, who's sometimes conflated with the god of the winds. Alcyone and her lover Ceyx regarded their passion as equal to that of the gods, playfully calling each other Zeus and Hera. Naturally, this didn't sit well with the thunder god who hurled a lethal bolt at a ship in which Ceyx sailed. Things went from bad to worse when Morpheus comes to Alcyone in her dreams, announcing her lover's death. And Alcyone throws herself into the sea to drown. Out of pity, however, the gods transform Alcyone, or both Alcyone and Ceyx, into birds to aid them in their endless search for their drowned loves. The precise bird in this case is the kingfisher, whose scientific name preserves the myth, with the genus of the common kingfisher being Alcedo, a Latin derivation of Alcyone, and the river kingfisher known as Ceyx. The bird was also later called the Halcyon bird, from which you get our term, Halcyon, used to characterize a golden age or idyllic time before or between troubles. The source of this meaning is in tales told by Ovid and other Roman writers alleging that the kingfisher laid its eggs during seven halcyon days of winter that were without destructive wind or storm as the winds during those days were restrained by Aeolus, Alcyone's father in the guise of a wind god. Sometimes the bird is said to lay their eggs on a floating nest of fish bones and so it's uh, storms at sea that are calmed during these days. This additional bit of Alcyone's myth has been transferred to the Alkonost, 
The Russian creature is also said to lay its eggs in midwinter, depositing them on the shore, then rolling them into the sea, where they sink to the bottom for seven days, after which they return to either the shore or the surface. And during those seven days, the seas are always placid, but afterwards, they're stormy. And for this reason, the Alkonost is often regarded as having power over wind and storms. In Russia, and in fact elsewhere in Europe, the kingfisher's control of storms or ill winds is recognized in the use of the bodies of uh, the dried birds as protective charms. And when the bird is suspended on a thread, the beak is said to point to the direction from which any winds or storms would arrive. And the trick's supposed to work indoors also. There's one last East Slavic bird woman that can be related to weather. According to an old proverb, When Gamayun flies from the sunrise, a deadly storm comes. The Gamayun itself isn't deadly, it's just associated with predictions of things to come, deadly or otherwise. Unlike the uh, Alkonost, and particularly the Siren, an encounter with the Gamayun guarantees good fortune. In fact, the creature is sometimes referred to as... The bird of happiness. Or it can be referred to as... The bird of prophecy. And it's more than weather being predicted here. Through its song, it shares its divine knowledge of everything in the universe, reaching back to creation and extending to events to come. Though it's said that not all mortals have the ability to comprehend it. The source of this divine knowledge is a connection with the old Slavic gods. In fact, sometimes the Gamayun is said to be an embodiment of Viris, one of the most important Slavic deities associated with magic, music, wealth, and agriculture. As with our other Russian bird women, the habitat of the Gamayun is generally agreed to be paradise or its uh, earthly suburb somewhere in the mythical east by the Euphrates in India, or specifically in the case of the Gamayun, on an island of the east called Buyan, one known to appear and disappear through the action of magical tides. Apparently, it can also be found in southern Austria, or so we're told in a strange entry in a travel journal kept by Peter Andreevich Tolstoy, an ancestor of the writer and steward to Peter the Great. Recounting a visit to a cabinet of curiosities kept by an unnamed Austrian aristocrat during his travels between 1697 and 1699, he writes, Immediately I saw four birds, which are called gamayuns, put in jars filled with brandy and spice. He doesn't mention anything about human heads and what must have been rather small specimens. In this case, it seems he's using the word gamayun interchangeably with bird of paradise to describe a rare but terrestrial bird with exotic, colorful plumage. Uh, the term could be used to describe the bird we now know as the bird of paradise, after which the flower is named, uh, a species that's found in rainforests of New Guinea and eastern Australia. But it could also describe any colorful, exotic bird unknown in Europe. And the term wasn't restricted to use by Russians. In 1522, Ferdinand Magellan, for instance, brought dried specimens of these birds to the court of Charles V of Spain. 
Antonio Pigafetta, chronicler of the voyage, described in the ship's logs receiving them from natives they encountered. These birds have no wings, but instead of them, long feathers with different colors like plumes. They never fly except when the wind blows. They told us that these birds come from the terrestrial paradise. Other references to birds of paradise describe them not only lacking wings, but legs, a curiosity that can be attributed not to the bird itself, but the method in which they were commonly preserved, one that involved gutting the bird and removing the legs and sometimes the wings as the uh, colorful tail plumage was what gave them their value in trade. From this, it was deduced that they not only did not fly, but that they never landed on earth, but were strictly creatures of heaven or paradise. Observing their lack of internal organs led others to speculate that these uh, heavenly creatures required no food, subsisting only on air. But references to legless birds of paradise are much older than the 16th century. Already in the 6th century, they're mentioned in a Byzantine volume called Christian Topography, written by the uh, traveling merchant and monk known under his uh, Greek pen name, meaning India Traveler. Sources such as this would have been influential on Russian folklore, and here it's worth noting that the Gamayun, outwardly at least, distinguishes itself from the Alkonost and Siren in only one important way. It's said to have no legs. Though it lacks the human head, a nearly identical creature, a divine legless bird that brings happiness and wisdom, exists also in Persian and Ottoman culture. It's called the Huma bird, and the name is probably the source, or etymologically linked at least, with that of the Kamayun. The piece you're hearing, written by Dmitry Shostakovich in 1967, is called Gamayun, the Bird of Prophecy. It's part of Seven Romances on Poems by Alexander Bloch. The typically uh, unsettling discordances of Shostakovich is used here to suggest the ominous prophecies borne by the Gamayun in Bloch's poem from 1900, for instance. She prophesizes the cruel Tartar's yoke, a secession of bloody executions, cowardice and famine and flames, the power of tyrants, the death of the righteous. Seized by primordial terror, her beautiful face burns with love, but with prophetic truth resound, those lips stained with blood. Bloch, a major poet of the Russian symbolist movement, greeted the Russian Revolution as a mystical anarchist, exhibiting uh, religious tendencies, which made the Bolsheviks uneasy and somewhat diminished Bloch's rising star. His uh, Gamayun poem was itself inspired by an 1897 painting, Gamayun, the Prophetic Bird, by Viktor Fasnetsov, who also painted the best-known image of the Russian birds, the painting Siren and the Alkonos the previous year. I'll post that in the show notes and would encourage you to check out other work by the artist, which focuses on uh, folkloric themes. Vosnetsov was born 40 years before Bloch and was a contemporary of the composer Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who also embraced similar folkloric themes. 
Vasnetsov actually provided stage design for Rimsky-Korsakov's 1883 opera, The Snow Maiden, as well as Sotka, his 1897 opera, which we'll discuss in a moment. But I first wanted to mention Rimsky-Korsakov's 1905 opera, The Legend of the Invisible City of Kichev and the Maiden Fevronia, as it features the Siren and the Alkonost. The love of Fevronia in the story is Prince Yuri of Kichev, a city which, like the island of Buyan, can shroud itself in invisibility. After he's killed in battle with the Tartars, uh, Fevronia goes to mourn him in the forest, and the two birds appear to her, one telling her that she must die, and the other promising immortality, which is granted in the last act as she appears with her slain love in the paradise of the invisible city. So, uh, Sotka is the hero of a 13th century epic poem, an adventurer, merchant, and master of the Gusli, a sort of Russian zither. He's a representative of the culture of Novgorod up near the Baltic countries. The opera begins with him making a wager with the merchants of Novgorod that he can reach into the water of the harbor and catch a fish of gold, a wager which is successful thanks to his entanglements with the Tsar of the Sea, which uh, dominate the storyline. The uh, Bird of Paradise is referenced early in the story as Satka buys a new ship and recruits sailors for his adventure. There's a series of arias sung by potential recruits, uh, travelers from distant ports, a Viking, a Venetian, and a visitor from India. The aria sung by the last describes the Bird of Paradise. The Song of India, as it's called, is not only the most popular aria from the opera, but was oddly transformed into a sort of American jazz standard during the big band era. While it's a little more than a passing reference in the opera, I'm including it here because a Russian film from 1953, partially based on the opera, gives the Bird of Paradise quite a significant role, and I thought it would make for uh, some interesting clips with which to close our show. Zodko was directed by Alexander Chuko, who is sometimes referred to as the... Soviet Walt Disney as he made a number of fantasy films based on folk tales and legends in the 50s and 60s. Though I think that Alexander Rowe, whom I mentioned in our Baba Yaga episode, might be more deserving of the title. Um, in any case, the creature, which is really quite nicely visualized, takes the place of the golden fish in the film, something he must catch. And rather than plucking it from a lake, the uh, storyline makes the quest for the bird a reason for him to visit India, where it resides in the tower of a palace belonging to a Maharaja. I'll put a still from the film in the show notes and maybe a video link on the site. In 1962, the film underwent a curious transformation when Roger Corman decided it might make good fair for kitty matinees and release it in America as The Magic Voyage of Sinbad. Sinbad sailed on in search of the bird of happiness, past the temples and shrines, the great wonders of the earth, the pyramids, and the all-wise sphinx. As Sinbad was not known for playing the ghostly, the musical numbers were cut, and 
a narrator was added to smooth things over, and dubbed English dialogue was uh, written in part by a young Francis Ford Coppola. The credit sequence was even redone, replacing the scary, foreign-sounding Russian names of the actors with more uh, American-sounding pseudonyms. The results were clunky enough for the film to have been given the uh, Mystery Science Theater treatment back in 1993, but in its original form, Sotka's hardly representative of the uh, inept filmmaking for which that series was known. Like the Alkonostan Sirin, Chuko gives the bird woman the ability to overwhelm human thought and volition, not through song, however, but by speech. The uh, bird woman, which is called a phoenix in the American version, um, puts to sleep an entire Indian army, including battle elephants, in a rather fantastic sequence, with which I'd like to close. What power that voice will have over bone and sickle listeners, one can only guess. Climb into bed, and good night.